This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Um, I'm going to pull it in, and it's just worth acknowledging this has been a very difficult and unusual day. Uh, for everyone, uh, for all of you all, fairly disorienting day. Uh, and I just sort of want to acknowledge that uh, as we begin. And I have thought all day, I don't actually know if I mentally want to give a, a lecture. And so if you, in light of what's going on, if you feel listening to a lecture is a little much, I just, I'm not going to take it personally uh, if you need to zone out for a little bit. Um, but there has, uh, there's some, I, get, I just also want to say in the beginning, I feel like there's a timeliness to this lecture. I chose to do this lecture about three months ago. Uh, I gave the title of it, Wanting to Talk on Jesus' Death. This, the title of the lecture is... Um, uh, um, <laughs> it's not here, but it's on. Uh, it's on Jesus. It's between between the cross and the resurrection, Holy Saturday, the day Jesus was dead. And I wanted to speak about it in light of uh, where we are as a culture that sort of tends, well, doesn't just sort of tends, really avoids death in many ways, actual death. Um, and I did. I chose that months ago, in large part because I had been working towards wanting to do some teaching on fathers, and in particular, absent fathers. And then I thought, coming closer to when I had to give the title of the lecture, talking about fathers is just going to touch too close to home. I'm going to put that off for a little bit, maybe come back to it someday. And I feel like talking about death and talking about Jesus' death is actually touching very close to home uh, today. And so... My hope is that there's something here tonight for you that you can take with you, because as you leave here uh, tomorrow, or the day after, or the day after, or if you're staying here, um, yeah, we're going to be hearing a lot about death um, in the near future. So I just want to start with a prayer, Uh, pray for myself, but pray for all of you as well, and then we'll jump in. It's going to be a slightly different night, if for no other reason than there's a dry erase board, uh, which is not part of our our normal protocol. And there's just one slide tonight. This is going to be up all night. Um, well, let me pray. Um, Lord, we we give you thanks that Jesus has trampled down death by his death. And uh, though we are mortal and we will die, um, we will be raised as he was um, if we trust in him. I ask that uh, as folks go from here over the next few days, um, that something uh, that could be helpful from this talk would go with them and give me uh, clarity to speak, um, clarity of mind. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, the risen one. Amen. Amen. 
<clears throat> so I want to start this lecture. Uh, well, maybe actually before I start, I'm just going to say I'm going to leave this up all night. This is a, an icon, an image from the Orthodox Church. Uh, on the, it's called the Resurrection. That's what I've been told. That's what that says up there in Greek. I've been told that. Um, but this is Jesus, and I think a lot of what I want to talk about tonight is represented here. So if you find yourself drifting away, maybe your eyes can drift over here. This is Jesus in the middle. He is surrounded by glorious light. That's what this blue is around him. Uh, below him, this is the realm of the dead, or Sheol, which we'll talk about. This is the devil. These are the gates of hell that he has crushed, the gates of hell that will not prevail. This over here, uh, if I remember correctly, this is David and Solomon, uh, Jesus' kind of royal ancestors. And this is John the Baptist, who is pointing as the forerunner. And then over here, this is actually Abel. Uh, Cain killed the first murder in the Bible. This is Abel. Um, that's his shepherd's staff. Um, and I'm trying to remember who these two were over here. Um, two other biblical characters. But central here, in Jesus' resurrection, he's pulling up with him this old man and this woman in red. And these are Adam and Eve, representative of humanity. So, sort of our first parents. So that's what's going on here. There's a lot going on here. I wish I could remember who these other two were. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and start. And I want to start in a somber way with a prayer. Um, this is the prayer. I did not die today. I may die tomorrow. All of my tomorrows are in your hands. These three simple lines were a prayer that my wife gave to me about this time last year. She'd had a very bad case of the flu, and she was in bed for three weeks and felt close to death. And I was... These words hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, they were <clears throat> words that I knew were fairly obvious in some sense, but I had never actually prayed or really thought much about. And I would venture to say that since last year till today... Most days, I have prayed this prayer in one way or another. It's after one of the, my last conscious thoughts that runs through my head as I fall asleep. And so it often means in the morning, it's there kind of to greet me. So I don't always, but often enter each new day saying, I did not die yesterday or last night. I may die today. All of my tomorrows are in your hands. Again, this was something that Sarah gave me. As potentially morbid, or maybe just bizarre as this might sound, living with my, living with an awareness of my death has actually been a sobering gift. At nearly every point, every stage in my life, if you would have asked me if I knew I was gonna die, I would have said, sure, of course. Uh, of course, everybody dies. But this rather significant moment in my life, its end, Compared to the thoughts and the amount of attention I gave to what I would be wearing, what people would think of me, uh, what I looked like, what I might eat, this significant moment in my life had received little to no reflection whatsoever. The only exception would be on one of those very turbulent plane rides where you throw up those Hail Mary prayers and you're just like, ah. Uh, but usually those 
whatever I thought was out of my head by the time I was in the terminal. And so even though all the numbers are in, all the research agrees, we all die, I have lived much of my comfortable, healthy life living as if I won't, not really thinking about it. I've prepared for all sorts of events in my life. Spelling quizzes, my driver's license exam, asking my wife out for the first time. I practiced that before I did it. Then proposing to my wife, which was a little more just sort of, anyway, but I practiced for it. My wedding day, becoming a parent, this lecture, the list goes on and on of things that I prepared for. Uh, But I would say it's been, hasn't really been until recently that I've realized how little I've prepared for my own inevitable death. Uh, and perhaps for some of you this is the case, um, uh, though you might know the death of a loved one or a family member, um, your own death has might not received much attention or much thought. And that said, you could actually be in the opposite place. You could have been very close to death many times, and so thought about your death, or maybe for various reasons, turned the possibility of your own death over in your head over and over. I, I don't know where people are uh, on this, and there's many other places you could be. Uh, but this evening's lecture, I want to start uh, thinking towards the sober truth that uh, unless the Lord returns, we will die. And I want to think about this in light of a central truth of the Christian faith. That Jesus was dead. To be clear, I don't mean so much Jesus, his dying, his crucifixion, his death for us. Uh, I've heard a lot about Jesus' death on our behalf, a la Good Friday, what happens, the event on the cross. And I've heard a lot about his glorious creation-restoring resurrection from the dead, a la Easter Sunday. But I've heard significantly less on that in-between Holy Saturday, between the cross and the resurrection, um, about his being dead. And this seemingly silent day, this day between the cross and resurrection, which must have been completely disorienting, Mm -hmm. completely confusing and heartbreaking for Jesus' first followers. It's received a lot less attention in sort of Protestant corners of Christianity, Uh, but it was a beloved teaching of the early church. And the events of this day, Holy Saturday, are summed up enigmatically in a line in the Apostles' Creed, an early church baptismal confession that speaks about Jesus' descent to the dead. And so that's, as a way into what we were gonna, where I want to go tonight, I want um, to offer a little bit of a bird's eye view on how we think about death in the modern West, or perhaps until the last week, how we don't think about death often in the modern West. And again, it's bird's eye view, so it might not be the case for you. Uh, And this is in strong contrast to most of human history, including our relatively recent past. And against this backdrop, I want to take a longer look at this enigmatic line in the Creed on Jesus' descent. What is it saying? What is it not saying? How is it biblical? And so on. Uh, That's sort of where I want to go tonight. And so I want to start by talking about this, an idea of uh, a great transition, the great transition, um, which is how we do or don't think about death. And I got that term from an Anglican priest and a theologian named Ephraim Radner in a fairly 
oh, I, probably, I left it at home, a fairly demanding book um, uh, that he wrote that it's called, um, I forgot what it's called. The subtitle is on mortality. Oh, it's called A Time to Keep. Anyway, and he goes into great detail uh, on this idea of the great transition. And in a nutshell, the story behind the great transition is one that has taken place over the last 200 years. And it relates to two revolutionary matters, lifespan extension and birth survival. Lifespan extension and birth survival. The numbers are amazing. The average life expectancy in Europe around 1800 was 33 years old, which by the year 2000 has skyro- had skyrocketed up to nearly 80 so it more than doubled in 200 years. This extension of life brought with it unprecedented cultural change. A lifespan of roughly 30 years had been the average in ancient Athens, in Jesus' day, straight up to the Middle Ages, into the Reformation, pretty much always everywhere that we know of, until the 18th century, where it begins to incrementally increase. Radner goes through a lot of detail on this. It's interesting then to think, if that was the average lifespan, for Jesus to die around 30, 33 would not have made him... I mean, his death was tragic because of the means of his death, but it wasn't necessarily tragic because his life was cut off. Lots of people didn't live past uh, that age in the time. So no doubt, previous in previous eras, people survived past this age. No doubt about this. Uh, we have historical record of many, but on the whole, life expectancy was around 30. So through medical intervention and development... Not only has the end of a normal life, quote-unquote, been pushed further and further back, also the beginning of a, quote-unquote, normal life has been made incredibly safer. By some estimates, it was not uncommon for expecting parents to expect only a quarter of their children to survive past infancy. And to put some local flavor on this, uh, a town that's not far from here, it's about 45 minutes away, Andover, Massachusetts, um, if you live there in the late, teen, late 1600s, statistically, the average married couple in those days would have nine children, three of whom would die before they turned 21. A particular sad example of this was the life of a famous Puritan minister, Cotton Mather. Uh, he was a prominent citizen in Boston. He was a preacher, and he was around the same time, and he had all the medical advances of his day. Uh, everything was available to him. But Cotton was widowed twice, though he fathered 14 children, seven of whom died as infants soon after birth. Another child died at two, and of the six who survived into adulthood, five died in their 20s. Only one of his 14 kids outlived him. This was, of course, tragic, but it was not necessarily unheard of. Even with the finest care of his day, he still buried 13 children. Much of this was to be the assumed way life is. If you were to marry and have children, you would expect to bury some of them. Mothers, upon hearing that they were pregnant, would not only have to anticipate the interruptions and the discomfort that comes with marry, or comes with pregnancy, morning sickness, comfier clothes, they also had to come to grips with the hard truth uh, that there was a strong possibility that they would die giving birth. Uh, that they would not survive childbirth themselves. So birth was a literal laying down of one's life for another, for a stranger, if you think about it. Um, 
There's all sorts of other reasons why people's lives are so much shorter than our own. Malnutrition, disease, plagues, infections, sanitation, unclean water, on and on and on. Of course, the reality of war as well as the difficulty of manual labor. But Radner sums a lot of this up and he says that for much of human experience, mortality was fastened into your existence from your birth through every relationship from then on and at every point of your existence. Death was all around, all the time. So without a doubt, the great transition, life expectancy and safety in childbirth, uh, has been an amazing blessing to the world. And if anyone wants to say amen to that, I say amen. It is good to be living on the other side of this. So much good has come because of this. We have a lot to be thankful for and to be celebrated this side of the transition. And yet, and this is a significant yet, while this great transition has given us unimaginable health benefits, uh, really unimaginable to most of human history, it has also perhaps carried with it some unexpected existential difficulties. Modern medicine, with its incredible power to diagnose and heal so many problems, has also perhaps unintentionally snuck in with it a deeply ingrained, though often unarticulated, yet extremely powerful expectation uh, that if given enough time and resources, we can solve any problem, perhaps even death. This is articulated really well in a recent book called Remember Death. Uh, It's all black. Um, By a guy named Matthew McCullough. Dave turned me on to this book. And he worries that the inevitable reality of actual death has only become more and more disorienting when we are inevitably confronted by it because we live in an age where death, which was again once part of everyone's life, has been hidden away and sequestered into sanitized, professionalized institutions which people rarely visit or rarely think of. This allows for a pervasive modern form of self-perception that death is perhaps more like a disease that we're working on rather than the inevitable end of every human life. So given enough time, perhaps this too could be eliminated. Until then, we actually probably don't need to think about it too much. And even though we might live as though actual death might not get us, we're still completely obsessed with it. At least we're obsessed with watching it. The Walking Dead, Making a Murderer, Game of Thrones, even Breaking Bad. I wonder, which I love Breaking Bad. I've never seen those other shows. Um, uh, But shame on you if you have, no? (laughs) Um, But I wonder if there's a similar dynamic with watching these shows that are fixated on death and presenting death in a simulated way. It's similar to watching porn in a way. You can watch simulated artificial sex all day long um, and think in some way it's preparing you for actually having sex in real life. But it isn't at all. It's doing the exact opposite. It's not preparing you to deal with the reality of intimacy and connection with another person. And I wonder if watching so much cinematized death has detached us further from the reality of death, which is a real part of human life. So even though we may live uh, to a large extent artificially and momentarily sheltered from death, but we're fixated on it in a lot of our entertainment, we remain unprepared for it 
I include myself here. Perhaps, and perhaps this is the setup that death wants for us, in a sense. I know it's a little unusual to anthropomorphize death, to speak of it as though it's a being, but there's a biblical precedent for this uh, in the prophets. Uh, In all of this, we live with a profound fear of death. I live with a profound fear of my own death. Perhaps it's often easier for me to just not think about it and deny it than to consider it. There's there's a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas who's known for his hyperbole. Did you take anything with him? No, he wasn't teaching. But he's known for his hyperbole. And he asks a simple question uh, that gets at the heart of this. Uh, He's also known for having a... Like, he curses a lot. Um, It's sort of uncool. But anyway, different story. But he asks this question that gets to the heart of this modern fear. And the question is simple. How do you want to die? How do you want to die? Hauerwa says, most likely, when he is asked that question, most often when he is asked that question, what he hears is that people want to die quickly, painlessly, and in their sleep. It's, I have to be honest, that's how I would like to die as well. Um, I don't like pain. I don't want to feel more of it. I don't want to be a hassle to my loved ones. But if I'm honest, I, I fear death. Um, I, don't, I don't totally know what to make of that. Hauerwas brings up, though, that this modern, pervasive modern approach stands in contrast to our spiritual forebearers, forefathers, foremothers, that stand on the other side of the great transition. He answered this differently. Um, Hauerwas takes his lead from a striking prayer request that's found in the Great Litany in the Book of Common Prayer. This was prayed at the beginning of uh, the season of Lent. Uh, It says, Save me from all oppression, conspiracy, and rebellion. So far, so good. From violence, battle, and murder. Totally on board with this prayer. And from dying suddenly and unprepared, good Lord, deliver us. Um, I don't think this means every person who lived on the other side of the Great Transition had no fear of death. I'm not trying to imply that, that they were all noble people. But I struggle to imagine praying such a prayer honestly myself. Um, But what if these previous generations who lacked the resources we have for a long, healthy life had developed the spiritual and internal resources to fear God more than they feared death? To pray such an unthinkable prayer, save me from a sudden death. Um, And they wanted this because they wanted time to repent before God, to make peace with their friends and their enemies, and as best they could get their lives in order as they approached God. They were preparing themselves to face God. And I think one way to develop such resources might begin to grasp spiritually and existentially what it means that Jesus descended to the dead. This kind of ambiguous line in the creed. And it's going to take a little work to get our heads around what this teaching is. It's pretty foreign to us, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, But hopefully we can get our heads around it and it can bolster our hearts, especially as we head out into a world where there is a new awareness 
of the pervasiveness of death. And what I want to say, I want to just give the summary up front because it's going to be a little work to get there. But what I want to say is this. Jesus' descent is his victory dance over death and its power. This day in between the cross and resurrection is the beginning of Jesus' exaltation. He has undergone humiliation in the incarnation all throughout his life, leading climactically to his death, his atoning death on the cross. And the descent teaches us, and this this is a quote, this is a summary statement from a book on this called He Descended to the Dead by Matthew Emerson. Uh, that was just helpful on this. He says, The descent teaches us that Jesus experienced death as all humans do. His body was buried and his soul departed to the place of the dead. And in so doing, by virtue of his divinity, he defeated death and the grave. This is about Jesus' victory over death. Jesus defeating death. Robbing of robbing it of its power, the Orthodox Church, who made this icon, use in their own their own Easter liturgy that Jesus trampled down death by his death. That's what we're after here. So this isn't about Jesus being abandoned by the Father or suffering torment in hell. His work of salvation has been completed on the cross. This isn't about him preaching a second chance sermon. Uh, for salvation for those who are punished uh, or in hell, as we'll see. I don't think it's appropriate to say he descended to hell. Uh, But he does go down there and he preaches. And what I think he preaches is, I won. It's over. I won. So that's where we want to get to. Now, if anyone has ever been to a church that recites the Apostles' Creed, anybody, people familiar with the Apostles' Creed, uh, if you're like me, at some point, on one occasion, you've come to this line, he descended to the dead, maybe it says he descended to hell, and you've thought, huh. huh. What, what's going on here? Um, and then the question, too, if you've been to different churches and prayed, heard different versions, where exactly did he go? Is it to hell? Is it to the dead? Um, is this in the Bible? What is this? Um, and you're probably not alone in your creedal befuddlement here. Uh, this line is easily the most debated part of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and I'm really glad I chose to speak about it. Um, we are too. But what we know of the Creed is that it was used as part uh, of the church in Rome's uh, baptism liturgy. And the whole process of how the creed was used is described in a third century document called the Apostolic Tradition, which uh, was written by a pastor named, wait for it, Hippolytus. It's a pretty exciting name. Uh, And he records that on Easter morning, those who were about to be baptized would enter into the water naked, and they would be asked, do you believe in God the Father? Maker of heaven and earth. And they would say, yes, I believe in God the Father. Maker of heaven and earth. Under the water. Back up. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? His only... And that they would go through the whole creed. And the person would recite. And they would be dunked. It would be sort of three dunks for the sort of three breakdowns of the uh, of the creed. And so these words that we read come to us from an early part of the church. Uh, early time in the church. It has old roots. 
um, in a time when the church was marginal, was powerless, was a persecuted group. So amazingly, these words are still with us today. Yet today, in some churches, and primarily in reformed pockets of the evangelical world, many are advocating that we dismiss this line, that we just skip it or take it off. Its most uh, notable critic is a guy named Wayne Grudem, uh, which I think is, uh, I understand where he's coming from. Uh, If it's not biblical, we don't want to say it, but it does sort of seem to be a big move to be like, I think I can change the Apostles' Creed. it's an ancient ecumenical creed. Um, <clears throat> but I think part of this illustration is confusion, because it's it's if it's teaching that Jesus went to hell, maybe this should be something we could we should uh, consider getting rid of. But again, I don't think that's what it's teaching, and we're gonna get there. But to get a little context, the oldest Greek version of the Apostles' Creed, uh, it, this line reads, and I'm gonna butcher this, uh, Cafe Lanta est, uh, I'm, you know, actually, I'm not even going to try to read it. Uh, but it, but it, it has Greek words that mean descended to the lower ones. Or you could translate it as descended to those below. And in later Latin version, it reads, I can, I'm a little better maybe with Latin, but, uh, dis, it's also not italicized. I think that's why the Greek is hard to read here. I italicized it for some reason. Um, sure, that's what it is. Anyway. Uh, later Latin versions read, uh, descended ad inferos. 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 It doesn't have an N, infernos, but inferos. It means those below. Sort of like the word inferior, inferos. Um, so the Latin sort of corresponds to the Greek. There. So those are in some of the earliest. And again, Emerson, in his, his very, very, very thorough book on this, he's written... Um, 221 pages on this line in the Creed. It's a very thorough book. Again, he sums up the teaching as follows. He says, Jesus, what it teaches us is Jesus experienced death as all humans do. His body was buried and his soul departed to the place of the dead. And in so doing, by virtue of his divinity, he defeated death and the grave. So if it's not hell... If, if, like, what I want to argue, following Emerson and, and others, what is this place of the dead that Jesus goes to? Why am I not saying hell, as some translations do? Uh, I've been helped here by another uh, New Testament scholar, a guy named Charles Hill. Here, if you email him, he responds and he says, "From Chuck." So I'm going to call him Chuck Hill uh, tonight. Um, but he sort of has this hypothetical way into, uh, imaginative way, it's not actually, well, anyway. But imagine you're doing street evangelism on the streets of Jerusalem around the time of Jesus. And the method you take for your street evangelism is a fairly standard North American evangelical approach. And you come up to a Jew, yeah, you come up to a Jew and you said, if you were to die tonight, why should God let you into his heaven? Now, besides receiving a look of, of befuddlement and surprise. Uh, uh, Hill says, most likely you would hear something like, what? What are you talking about? Who are you kidding? God doesn't let anyone into heaven. What you probably meant to ask me was, why should God let me into the good section of Hades? Why should God let me into the good section of Hades? And this is going to get uh, get us into a little bit of 
the geography of death or the afterlife of the world around the time of the writing of the New Testament. The nature of an intermediate state. Again, this is how the world of Jesus' day conceived what happened to people between their death and a general resurrection where everyone is resurrection resurrected at the end of time. This is talked about in Daniel 12. And you'll be there they'll be raised to everlasting life or to everlasting shame and contempt. So while we're all waiting for this general general resurrection at the end of time, where do people go? What happens to their spirits? What happens to us when we die? I have to confess, I found some of this a little confusing at times and complicated, also a little strange. Um, So hopefully this, uh, this will be helpful here. Hopefully. But going back to the idea, the good section of Hades. Hades is a Greek word which translates the Old Testament Hebrew word for Sheol. Sheol. Hades uh, not, uh, is not simply heaven or hell, but is a term that's often used as a synonym for death and the grave. It's associated with the depths of the earth. Uh, so in the Old Testament, when people die, they go down. They go down to a place, to a realm. They go to Sheol, or then what's translated, when it gets translated into Greek, as Hades. And this is a place where all dead go, good or bad. So here we go. This is Hades, this whole thing here, or Sheol. That's what it, that's what's going on over here, this whole thing. And it's in red because, you know, it's a good color. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Everyone goes there. Righteous Jacob doesn't want his gray hairs to go down to Sheol. And so while there's some idea of some manner of consciousness after death, uh, it's often muted and a bit murky through much of the Old Testament. But it becomes clearer and clearer as the Old Testament moves along. There's a bit of a trajectory towards talking more about being in this place, being conscious there. Uh, though it's, again, not super clearly articulated. But by the time of Jesus, there is some level, some clear level of post-mortem consciousness. If you think about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, which I don't think is a teaching on (coughs) heaven and hell. It's more of a teaching on what happens, why we should care for the poor and what happens when we disregard the poor. But there's this parable where there's a rich man who wears purple robes and does well, and a poor man named Lazarus. And they both die and go to a place called Hades. And there's they can communicate to each other, even though they're in these sort of different pockets of Hades. So Hades, or Sheol, is in some manner a spiritual place where someone goes after death while their body remains in the grave, waiting for the time when they'll be properly reunited. So this is the realm of the dead, Hades or Sheol. And remember, there's a, at least one good section of it. And while all those who die go to this place, the experiences of those in it, be they righteous or unrighteous, is really quite different. We see a lot of this in extra-biblical literature from the Second Temple Judaism, which is religious Jewish religious writing from around the time of the New Testament. Um, and, and again, we saw it even within the New Testament with Lazarus and the rich man. 
Uh, but if you look at the extra biblical literature of Second Temple Judaism, again, the thought world that was contemporaneous with Jesus and the apostles, there are times where the spirits of those who are in Sheol or Hades in the realm of the dead, it's divided as having, it's described as having three compartments. Two for the wicked and one for the righteous, all of whom are awaiting the final resurrection. And again, this is elaborated quite a bit more in Emerson's book, as well as by my friend Chuck Hill. Uh, and for those that have access to intertestamental Second Temple Judaism literature, you can find this in First Enoch, Second Baruch, or Four Ezra. Um, and while again, this um, this seems to be some of the conceptual background that the New Testament authors are working out of. And I would wager that two of the three compartments. Maybe our, we could guess what they are. Um, the place for the righteous is sometimes called paradise. So it's here. It's sometimes called paradise. This is the good section that, that Jew you were evangelizing wants to go to. It's sometimes called um, Abraham's... Uh, I know, I'm sorry, that's messy. Um, Abraham's uh, bosom, which... Thank you. Yeah. It's sometimes called paradise, uh, or Abraham's side, or bosom. So when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus is talking about this place, this part of the realm of the dead. Um, the other compartment of Hades and Sheol, where the rich man ends up, where he's described as being in torment, is sometimes just sort of called Hades itself, or Gehenna. And this is a place you don't want to be. Oh, I didn't write that very well, did I? You can tell this is my first time on a dry erase board. (laughs) I really am trying here, folks. Um, I'm doing this for you. Um, So we have described as in the same that everyone goes down to the same place to the the realm of the dead but it has these different compartments one for one for the righteous one for the unrighteous and we know there's some sort of communication possible cuz uh, the um the rich man sees Lazarus up here and speaks to him uh and 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 hears back so there's some sort of communication now this third compartment uh, this one might be new to many of you. It was pretty new to me. Um, uh, and it's the second one for the wicked, and it's called either, I'm going to write bigger this one, uh, Tartarus or the Abyss. Tartarus or the Abyss. This place gets a lot of mention in extra biblical literature. But it only appears once, this word Tartarus, only appears once explicitly in the New Testament, which is in Second um, Peter 2.4. And it's nearly always translated, i got a whole bunch of these things here. It's nearly always translated as uh, hell in most of common translations, in the NIV, in the NAS, in the ESV. This is my translation. Um, where was I here? Second Peter two four. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into. Mine says hell. 
but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness and kept them until judgment. There's other translations that talk about this as the lowest place or a gloomy, dark place. Tartarus, this place Tartarus. This is a place uh, that is also called the abyss in Luke's account of the man with the legion of demons within him. This is where the demons, when they recognize who Jesus is, Dave talked about this last week, when they recognize who Jesus is, they say, don't cast us out, don't send us to the abyss. This is the lowest place, sort of in this conceptual world of Hades and Sheol, uh, and, and it's reserved for, for demons or for fallen angels, or and it's described as a prison. And though it's not named directly, it seems to be behind some of uh, more bizarre verses in the New Testament. Um, again, uh, this is from 1 Peter 2. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Which he's talking about the spirits in prison. Um, And so these are all, these three compartments are sort of the geography of death. This is the nature of the intermediate state. Uh, in the in the in the imaginations of people uh, of Jews around the time of Christ, these are not eternal destinations. These are places that we're waiting, and these are sort of spatial, temporal ways of talking about spiritual realities. I don't, in that sense, want to necessarily say when I talk about going down that if we dig far enough down, we'll eventually discover. This, I think it's speaking of spiritual realities, but using spatial, temporal ways of talking about it. So I don't necessarily think it's... Well, anyway, I've said that. But these are still awaiting a general resurrection, a final judgment. These places were sort of foretastes of what, the, what was to come. But they were for those that were dead, and there was no way of getting out of them. So when we hear hell... When we hear hell, as many translations of the creed have it, we think of final judgment, of eternal consequences. But that is a future thing. That's something that is to come, because hell in that sense doesn't exist yet. It's a future matter that belongs to a later line of the creed. He will come again to judge the living and all those who are dead. When Jesus comes back, then we can talk about final judgment heaven and hell as final destinations. But at this point in the logic of the creed, it doesn't seem to be what's implied by this. So Jesus descends to the dead is a way of saying he really died. Jesus died as all humans do. He was truly dead and he went to the place of the dead, the realm of the dead. Uh, He went to Hades or Sheol. And this is a place that you can't Get out of once you get there. This is where you are. It has power over you, and you're not going to leave. But this is where Jesus goes in his descent. Descent stories are everywhere, if you think about it. They're everywhere. We love descent stories. Hercules and Orpheus going into Hades. Harry Potter going down the pipes 
to the chamber of secrets. Hop and Joyce Byers going into the upside down, looking for Will Byers. Right? There we go, all my Stranger Things people. Um, Gandalf. Gandalf going down to fight uh, the the, uh, Balrog in the deep, deep parts of Moria. We yearn for heroes to go to dark places, to go to the darkest places, to defeat the enemy and bring their loved ones home. The Apostles' Creed, this, this line in the Apostles' Creed, he descended to the dead, is not a major note in Scripture. And what exactly is portrayed there, is there, what exactly happens, isn't narratively portrayed anywhere in the Gospels. You could say it's a, like a teaching or a doctrine that sort of happens off stage. We're not described very well what happens. We don't see it. Like so many things that God is up to and doing in this world, we don't see it. We don't get to see it. But clearly something rather significant happens. Something revolutionary happens. As we turn to other passages in the New Testament that speak of the faithful who have died, we see a radical break with this geography of death. And that gives us some clues into what it was that Jesus did while he was dead. No longer are saints presented as going down, going down to Sheol, going down to Hades, going down to the good compartment, to paradise, to Abraham's bosom, awaiting resurrection in some murky subterranean chamber. Instead, they're described as being in the presence of God. Here's a few places throughout the New Testament to talk about this. This is Hebrews 12, 22 to 23. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly, or the church, of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven. So you're coming to be surrounded by the people of God. God's people are with him. Or think about sort of tricky verses in the book of Revelation. Uh, this is Revelation 6, 9. When, the, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. They're not under the earth. They're not down in Sheol anymore. They are in God's presence. They're under the altar. And then in Revelation 7, 9, you get this. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Something has happened. People are not down anymore. They're up. They're with God. And if you remember Jesus' prayer in John 17, Father, I desire that they also... Those whom you have given to me, I desire that they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In Jesus' descent to the dead, he changes the geography of death. He enters into death's realm, this place that we can't get out of, this place that we can't leave. 
He goes down so that we might go up to where he is. He breaks its power. He comes by the nature of his life. He's God. He's a man who genuinely dies, but he's God. And by the nature of his divinity, he breaks the power of death. Here's some of Paul's words in Ephesians 4. When he ascended on high, the he being Christ, he led a host of captives, or literally, he led, he, he took captivity, he took captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he who had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And there's this interesting, this is, this, this is part of a quote. Paul is quoting Psalm 68, that when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. In the, in the Old Testament version of that, it says, um, and he received gifts from men. He's twisted this in some way. I don't think he's misquoted it. I think he's slightly nuancing it. Uh, it's quite an interesting thing. But Jesus has made captivity captive. Or here what happens in how Paul talks about this in Philippians 2, where he's summarizing the whole story of Jesus' life. He says, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or Jesus's words, these amazing words that come at the beginning of Revelation. John says, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is the first slaying in the spirit. And he laid his right hand on me and he said, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys. He's saying, I own the place. It's working for me now. The power that that Hades had, that death had over you, there's there's no power anymore. It's mine. I own the keys to the joint. So Jesus' descent, he descends to this place and he tells them, I've won. I have defeated the power of death, the power that kept you here. And he brought up with him those who were waiting. And so Jesus has gone through the valley of the shadow of death himself. He has done so before you. And you will. Jesus has not only died, he knows what it's like to be dead. But by entering into death, we know he has gone there ahead of us. 
and he's robbed it of its power. I may not die today. I may die tomorrow. All of my tomorrows are in your hands. Save us, Lord, from all oppression, conspiracy, and rebellion, from violence, battle, and murder, and from dying suddenly and unprepared. Good Lord, deliver us. Jesus has triumphed over death. I will die, and you will die. But Jesus has gone before us into the valley of death. And so as we go, whenever it is that we go into the valley of death, we know he's gone before us. And he's robbed it of its power. I'm going to stop there. Um, Could you read the, the, poem, the poem, the prayer poem again? The one that Sarah gave me? Can you correct it? Can you correct it after I shut the recording off? I did say that I do sort of my own like a riff on it. So I gave it. There's some space. Today I might die. Yesterday I did not. All my tomorrows belong to you. Can you say that one more time? Yeah. It's all there. Yeah. Today I might die. Yesterday I did not. All my tomorrows belong to you. All of you. <laughs> but we'll be talking about this later. <laughs> um, we normally end lectures with question and response. Um, I talked for longer than I thought I would. Um, and I think we're going to do something sort of collectively after. But I'm happy to clarify any of this. A lot of this was very tricky for me. But yeah. Uh-huh. In the, in the abyss, it was, you said it was the fallen angels and... Like demons. So okay, the demons, demons yeah, that... I thought, I thought yeah. That so when, yeah. And, and those are in um, Luke... In Luke's account, my pages are such a mess here. Um, yeah, in Luke's account, the demons, when Jesus is casting out the demons um, from the man, they say, yeah, the demoniac, they say, don't send us to the abyss. And, and a lot of the other inter- intertestamental literature, the sort of Jewish uh, literature of the time, the abyss or Tartarus is spoken about as the place of it's a prison for fallen angels. And, yeah. Uh huh. I have a couple questions. Um, yeah. So I guess one would be: Is this in this like intermediate state? Well, first of all, so is it basically like a glorified wait from this model? Is it like a glorified waiting room where you just wait until heaven? Or yeah. There's in a in a sense, it's a it's a space of waiting. It's intermediate. Um, okay. I wouldn't necessarily always say it's glorified. Um, okay. But, so yeah. basically, like Adam or. Yeah, and again, I, I don't think it speaks of a of a literal place, but of a, of a spiritual reality. Like, I don't think if we dig down far enough, we're gonna we're gonna come across this. Um, okay. But yeah, a place—it's a place of waiting, because the, the idea is the body and the soul are supposed to be together. 
um, that they're not supposed to be separate. Um, cool. Yeah, and then was there another? Uh, yeah, and then um, so just a few questions about people being raised from the dead. So like when Jesus died, the dead were raised. So would they have come from this place? Then? Come from here, where the righteous are. So yeah. Some people will say. Some people will say that everybody comes up to. Um, I don't see a reason. Okay. I don't see much reason to do that, but yeah, but that those, those who were there waiting for him, waiting for whoever was gonna, um, okay. yeah, so yeah. Okay, and then one more, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like in the parable that you were mentioning of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh huh. Um, it seems, to, it seems to suggest that people have left this place and gone back to earth. Well, obviously, if you're raised from the dead, but he's like, send someone to go to my brothers. And when we look in the Old Testament, um, Saul calling him necromancer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the prophet Samuel appears from yeah. the dead. So yeah. like, that, that seems to suggest that he could, there's still a way for people to come back to earth. So I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think, I mean, the, uh, the rich man asks for it, and they're like, yeah. no. Um, uh, uh, no, that's not going to happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that's I. I don't actually know what to what to say about about the yeah about that yeah. Do you want or? I'm mean, just a little bit. There, there's a I don't know if you have more, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of Hebrew words, I guess, um, for like people who like soothsayers and people who bring up people from the dead. But it's a, kind of like a question mark. And usually that passage is like, you really wasn't supposed to be doing that. So like, yeah. yes, Samuel, come. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like, yeah. like, what he did really wasn't like, dude, saying wasn't yeah. like a good thing. But your question was, because I said you can't get out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the so. it's the spirit of Samuel that comes to you. It's yeah. not like a physical. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like a resurrection. People who have been raised from the dead throughout the history of the scripture, like Elijah raising people from the dead, Jesus. So they must have gotten out. I think, especially with Jesus, I could see how Jesus has sort of a different, uh, uh, like a different authority over it. But yeah, I, that's a good that's a good question that I I don't know because they. I mean, the Psalms talk about no one um, like knowing. Yeah, the transfiguration as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there are sort of like they're all good guys though coming from paradise, right? None, none of the bad guys are coming. Yeah, yeah, and also. Oh, go, yeah, yeah, keep going. Um, just like, I mean, Enoch, right? Enoch and Elijah, where are they? Are they here because they didn't actually die? So are they in heaven or are they here or what? Yeah, I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, there's such a, it's almost, I mean, it's just sort of like there it is, like the, yeah. so I, I don't know. Yeah, okay. but, and because, I mean, because, uh, which one does it say? Like he wa- he walked he walked with the Lord and then he was no more. Or what is it? Is it? Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Yeah. What I was going to say is like with um, dudes like Lazarus, but not not Lazarus in the parable, but like yeah. Lazarus himself. I think that those are kind of in like the widow's son for me. Um, those are examples and like foreshadowing of like those gates of Hades beginning to crack open. Um, and they're going to open to the extent where um, all who are there will be raised from the dead, and they're kind of like prefigurements that like Christ is, you know, 
in a metaphorical, metaphorical sense, he's beginning to rip that gate open and a few sneak out, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, speaking very metaphorically. Yeah. I mean, even, yeah, I mean, it does seem like there's just, I mean, you can count them on a couple hands, like on two, you know, it's not like the norm, uh, yeah. I think, but yeah. Yeah, it's a good, those are good questions. Yeah, Erica. Um, so that was like the model that they had kind of around Jesus' time, the Jewish model. Um, am I right in hearing you say that like now there's been a change like, because people go upwards? So people are with Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't necessarily, I mean, I think that like spatial te- like language isn't. Like it's helpful. Like uh, up is better than down, sort of in a sense. But uh, this is. I'm just trying to say. I think this is the world. This this is the thought, the like conception that's behind the line in the creed. Because when we hear hell in the creed, we think of a place of eternal judgment and fire. Where I think the idea of of going to the dead, which has. Um, like historical precedent, uh, even though, anyway, it has just a different sort of idea of what's going on and then what happened. But you're also said, I think, if I heard you right, you also said, like, kind of not, the, it wasn't the same as, like, heaven and hell are these ideas for after the final judgment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, kind of what would you say to people's experiences of being dead for a bit, experiencing some kind of heaven? Uh, I would say, I mean, Paul talks about being caught up, you know, having some spiritual experience. I would, I would give it no authority. I, I don't know how I could ever quite, like, I don't know how I could prove to them that, I don't know how it, they could, it could prove to me that, like, yes, legitimately, I believe you that this happened. Um, I don't, I guess I don't want to just outwardly dismiss it, but I would never want to say this is, you now should write a book about it, or you should do a speaking tour, or you should give sort of the geography of these places. I think that's, I think that's profoundly irresponsible. Um, so I, that's what I would, I would, I don't think I could honestly say, no, that didn't happen. You're full of it, but I would be pretty suspicious of it. And especially, yeah, if it's followed by, like details and like new, new words or revelations of it, like, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think God still speaks to people, gives people a sense, and speaks. I think my you know, question yeah. more like where people like where what's our concept of where people currently go when they die now? Yeah. Is it still this, or is it like um, if it's not? If you're saying, where have you gotten the idea that? Um, Just in the sense that they're final, okay. that they're sort of like they're final states. There's some there's some intermediate state, and the intermediate state at the time of Christ was more like this. Are we still it's, in this intermediate state, or are we in I think I think has changed because we're still like how it describes uh, like the language in Revelation or the language those verses in Revelation or in Hebrews that I read. That we're to be absent. I mean, what Paul is saying is to be absent with, from the body is to be present with the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's not what this model is. They're not present with the Lord. We're also and so, not, like, not all things have been made new. And like, you know, 
Yes, so we're, wait, we're waiting for that. Yeah, waiting for the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, for, for Jesus re- to return, to sort of set things right. So. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is sort of like that. Yeah, is, is that, is that, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. Yeah, this is another question I thought of. Yeah. Um, so, like, if we're based off the parable of Lazarus, and of course it's like a parable, so, but Jesus is God, so he, he definitely knows what it's like. Anyways, but um, the, the the rich guy is like, he wants a, a drip of water because he's in torment. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. In Hades. So, wouldn't that seem to suggest that there's some form of, form of punishment in this intermediate state? That's, that, that's similar to hell. There's some, there's some, yeah. There's language. The language is torment, right? Yeah. He's tormented. And there's different ways of describing it, and so different ways of understanding what what's being described. You know, like different ways of understanding. Because it's again, it's 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 using um, like he he's thirsty, but his body's not there. Uh, so like, what's what's he thirsting with? What kind of water does a does this does a disembodied spirit want? So it's like what's what's trying to be communicated? You know, like I'm uh, I'm not always sure. I want to give the exact nature of what the punishment is. What the t- I mean, it's very clear. It's torment, and it's very clear. This is a punishment for his carelessness uh, and for of just or for how he lived his life, a life of selfishness, a life of no regard for the poor. So I don't want to say like there's no judgment or anything like that, but it seems like. It's a it's a foretaste, and I I'm less. I'm just I'm just a little slower to say that I know the exact uh, kind of nature of all what those. I'm just a little more agnostic on it on what it what it all means because Paul talks about it in um, as being like Paul in one place talks about it as being like cast off into darkness, um, and uh, which I won't. I wish I could look in a second and probably find it, but um, like if there's fire, fire makes light. So what what are these what are these images telling us? Like it's clearly not good. I, I'm tr- I'm not. I don't want to sort of downplay that it's not a big deal, that there's not some proportional judgment or or punishment. But like I don't I don't know exactly what's always being communicated through the images. I guess, but yeah, Ben. Just a couple thoughts in that question. Um, Helpful thing to me is the N.P. Wright's way of talking about uh, the resurrected bodies we'll have. What, what, what Christians are actually looking forward to is he calls it life after life, life after, after death. death. Yeah. So, so life after death, um, to many people, has meant we get to go to heaven and be with God forever, and that's sort of the final state. And he he would he would say. No, there is there is this intermediary waiting for the for the resurrection of the dead, which is yeah. our final destination. When you know, when you die, yeah. you begin life after death, but that's not the the destination. <laughs> yeah, um, which has been helpful to me, like because because it, it it's totally makes sense with this kind of yeah. picture. Um, Doesn't he also say like heaven is not the end of the world, or what does he say? Or, uh, anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah, but he's something about it being the, it's not the end of the world. Anyway, some memorable... Th- sorry, keep going. I interrupted. But. Said a lot of good things. Um, I remember years ago hearing a lecture on, on dealing with the, the word Gehenna. It was, it was like a, it's like a garbage dump where trash is burned yeah. inside the city, right? So, yeah. it's like a, so it would have been a, a word that people would have known. 
and there was and there was just like it, it was an ultimate picture of like what's removed, like what's cast mm-hmm. off, what's not part of the, the, the picture anymore. Yeah, it's clearly unclean, and it's being burned in that sense. So, so some of the language of Gehenna and flames is not talking literally about flames eating you up in hell as much as it is a, a picture that people would be familiar with of what Gehenna was, which is like a trash dump. You know? Yeah. Um, some of the scholarship I read on this said that, that it being a burning trash dump doesn't happen until hundreds of years oh, okay. after Christ, okay. which then throws off the rest of the scholarship that I read that was like, what you just, so then I was like, I'm just like, oh wait, what, what is, like, I, anyway, I was like, what's it around, like, but that's what I've always thought until, um, but there's newer, like, historical research that says that if you look at the dates of those, it's it's later. But I don't, that's where I was like, I, I certainly haven't read, but I, I haven't, yeah, I've read, but I can't always remember. Just one, yeah. just a quick question, sorry. Yeah. So I've always thought of, uh, and maybe without having thought about this carefully enough, but when Jesus speaks to the, to the, to the man on the cross and says, today you'll be with me in paradise, yeah. I've always thought, oh, the guy's going to heaven with Jesus yeah. right now. But actually, it's just as much a comment on Jesus is going down. Yeah. to death mm-hmm. with you. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's, I'll see uh, you there, and yeah. then we're getting out of there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah which had never, it never occurred to me that that was. I always thought of paradise as synonymous with being in the presence of God. Yeah, in, um, but not necessarily that intermediary kind of yeah. place of God. I didn't know that either till fairly recently. Yeah, or that that was the. Yeah, yeah, Quentin. Just yeah. curious. Um, I noticed that like. Um, in terms like Hades and uh, Tartarus, like I I see these terms in Greek. Yeah, in Greek, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Tartarus being this realm within the underworld mm-hmm. type of thing. Yeah. Like, do you know why there's like this sort of correlation between Greek mythology? Yeah, because so Hades is just sort of the, if I'm I don't know Greek mythology Hades as well, but it's where yeah. yeah, in in the under it's a god and a place, right? Yeah, like it's, it's also yeah. it's sort so of both, and so it's a, it's a Greek word. That it, it translates the Old Testament idea of Sheol. So in the in the Septuagint, sort of the Greek translation, and then it shows up also um, in the New Testament. And so then it just becomes it's sort of a. I mean, a lot of times the um, the New Testament is sort of Hebrew ideas in Greek clothing, sort of like wrapped in like wearing. So it's a Greek word that yeah is used outside. And same with Tartarus. Tartarus only shows up once. In the New Testament, it's that one place um, uh, in Peter. And, I mean, I think there's the idea of some shared cosmology with, the, you know, that the New Testament has um, with the sort of surrounding cultural world. And, I mean, there's clearly a radical break uh, from that cosmology or a critique of it or um, a changing of it. But, yeah. Because um, I think Tartar shows up in, it shows up in some of that um, Second Temple Judaism literature, but then it also uh, in Greek mythology as well. But I don't necessarily know if they, even if I, I just this is where I just actually don't, I don't actually know uh, if it's always just because it's the the same word, it the same conception is exactly behind it. But yeah, but yeah, Marty. From, I just remember from a class, a class in 
classics at Wellesley that I sat in on, um, the, the Greek idea of, of uh, Hades being a place of shades, sort of that idea of yeah. insubstantial shades. But, but I remember this professor who was not actually described himself as a polytheist, he wasn't a Christian at all, saying that, that um, one of the things that attracted so many people to the Christian faith was that there was a, this idea of resurrection. There was just nothing like that. Resu- yeah. Resurrection, bodily resurrection, real mm-hmm. life after death, which there just wasn't, in, mm-hmm. according to him, in yeah. Greek, yeah. Greek thought. Religions. Yeah. Were you say something, Rachel? Or? Yeah. Do you know if if this system is is similar at all or identical to like modern Jewish thinking on the afterlife? That's a good question. Um, that's a good question. I would I would assume there'd be some strong continuity with it, but I don't I don't want to I don't want to go on record. No, one way or the other. So. I mean, even then, some of them did not believe. I mean, the Sadducees. Yeah, there's divergence. They believe in the resurrection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The resurrection, whereas Pharisees did. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I don't know today. I don't know yeah. what different schools of Judaism. But you could still have this kind of without a resurrection. Um, I guess. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's a good point. There is just there's different schools. Yeah. I just actually don't know. Oh, yeah, or you, maybe you know. I don't necessarily know. I just know that Sheol was, and, like, the intertestamental period was, was a, there was a different development of, like, what sort of Sheol was, and if you look at, if, when they, like, try to date certain texts, it's a little more ambiguous, and then they sort of define it in that period. So there was, it certainly evolved. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's evolved in some yeah. ways, but I don't yeah. know about it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Oh. By this model, are there any accounts, I don't know, um, of there being still, like, sin slash suffering slash tears slash pain? Because since this is, paradise is not heaven, um, Hades is not hell, so are people still able to sin? That's a really interesting question. I did not find anything that really, there's not, there's just, there's not a ton of, there's not, there's not, yeah, much spoken about it, um. Like what kind of goes goes on there exactly, and what? Probably for good reason. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I I don't remember hearing or reading. Um, or did you? Or do you? Or no, I I don't know one way or the other. But I mean, it just would make sense to me logically if it's a holding pattern that they're in that they wouldn't be able to change their status, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, until the final judgment. Yeah, yeah. yeah but it's, it's, they're kind of, yeah, oh, were you? I was going to say, it seems like the, the parable of Lazarus and yeah. the kind of says just that. Mm-hmm. You can't change. Yeah, yeah. This is, Once you're here, you can't change. When you were alive, you had Moses and the prophets. Yeah, um, they weren't enough for you. you. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So. Actually, that's one of the most important things about that that story is Jesus pointing to the fact that because the, because the rich man says, you know, if someone comes back and appears to my brothers from the dead, they'll believe him, they'll believe him. Mm-hmm. And and it's really interesting. No, they won't. They, yeah. you know, they had Moses and the prophets. And like, it's not a question of just having more miracles because you already have Moses and yeah. the prophets. Yeah. If they believe them, they would have 
they wouldn't believe me. They yeah. don't, you, know, you don't need more. Do you think that's Jesus predicting people's lack of belief in him even after the resurrection? I, I, I suspect yeah. something, something of that yeah. general. Since even if the dead were raised from the grave, mm-hmm. your siblings wouldn't believe. Yeah, this is sorry, kind of a sidetrack from the systems of no, it's all appeal, but did you run across anything in your research about um, there's kind of a weird reference to Jonah in the three days mm-hmm. and the descent and the yeah, yeah, yeah. Jonah it, like the words they use is Jonah literally yeah. like descends to yeah. the bottom of the ship and, yeah, 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 yeah and then they, their baptismal imagery and some yes. old murals anyway. yes, yeah, this guy um, spends a bit of Bit of time talking about yeah on Jonah as um, on Jonah as well um, yeah because Jonah describes the bottom of the ocean as Sheol sort of like I've gone down I've gone down to death and um, yeah he takes it in part as um, there's some sort of connection between where Jonah goes like the deepest place that anyone po- he goes because in Jonah it's like I forget exactly how it all works, but like, there's this like series of he goes down, like he goes down to Joppa, he goes down into the ship, he goes down to the bottom of the ship, and then he goes down into the belly of the whale, and then like down to the bottom, and it's almost like that's as far down as anyone could go, and Jesus goes like further down, Um, yeah. Because that that yeah, because you're right. There are there is imagery that has has like water involved. Like, it, like there's this the connection. They like have like, yeah. the, like the Jonah and whale thing, and when you would do the baptism, you would see like part of the artwork. Yeah, it. he um, if it was him or if it was somewhere else, but that there's this connection between the water, like in some like imagery, there's water. There's connection between the waters. Um, uh, that the spirit is hovering over the that are formless and void, you know, um, with then uh, which is just sort of the sea, which is then connected to where Jonah goes down into the water with Jesus is uh, being born, like the, the water that comes out at birth, which is then connected also to the water of his baptism, which is then going down to sort of the deep. There's this like this like channel of. Of stuff, and I forget if he. Yeah, um, yeah. There's it's just I forget where I in one of these books I talked about that, but. Uh, um, yeah, Justin. What was the um, the book you gave me? The guy who wrote on the New Testament. Talked about oh, the sign uh, of Jonah, yeah, yeah, Brant Petrie. Yeah, he talked about actually the language of the sign of Jonah. Well, when Jesus says the sign of Jonah, he went into the belly for three days. Is if you go back to Jonah, the idea is he died. He didn't just survive in the belly of the fish. Like we're like, how did he survive in the belly of the fish? Well, the story he didn't. Somehow got you know the fish stood him out, and he was brought back to life somehow. So that's that's more the sign of Jonah, as well as the repentance of these Gentiles, which is what happened with with Jesus after his resurrection. But I had never. Thought, like, I was assuming that yeah, it was Jonah was in there somehow breathing in the belly. Of fish. Wait, why is this never taught like this? <laughs> I was Yeah, I just had never heard that before. But he was, it was quite convincing. And uh, I mean, of course, there's there's other stuff you can say about Jonah. But, yeah. Yeah. 
But that, that whole imagery of descending, descending, well, he's, he got to the death, he got to dead. To yeah. The realm of the dead. Yeah. Maybe in that story, yeah. Yeah. Huh, yeah. Yeah, Dylan. A question. Yeah. You have a lot of questions. No, I love it. <laughs> Just always ask a little nervous. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, is there is there sin? In, are people with sin in hell? Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're already damned, so might as well. I don't. 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 It's I I would just it seems like not just and maybe I'm wrong on this and like whatever but I just think that is sort of moving into a a place of speculation that like there's certain things that we're told about hell and it's just clear you don't want to be there yeah Um, yeah yeah for a large part because Jesus isn't there and it just seems like it just it's not it's not a place of um, well, I'm sort of getting my thought together, but yeah. Or, they don't have a body. Like, everything that you would consider, like, a, a sin, you know, like, that might be pleasurable, they don't have the body to enjoy it. So, I mean, if it's just the spirit, then the, it it seems pointless. There are bodies. There are bodies. I mean, yeah, this really is getting into incredible speculation, which I Absolutely. think the Bible is silent about a lot of things because we're not... You know, we're told everything we need to know, but but I but the the main thing about hell is it's, it's separated it's separated yes. from from God, and that's and there will be I would think profound regret and recognition of and sorrow, recon- yeah. sorrow recognition of what rather than oh great now I now I can sin with abandon because right. um, I'm here <laughs> or I've already but, but rather profound sense of no, no, not repentance, but just there's not there's not going to be joy or fun. Yeah. But we really don't we really don't know. And there's a lot. And there's also this raises something I probably shouldn't even raise. But there's a lot of here we go. <laughs> and I, I mean, just that we we really know very little about about hell. We know it's yeah. Yeah. we know it's bad and. And there are arguments that there actually is is final, um, rather than consciousness, a yeah, conscious yeah, yeah. state of forever being, but actually annihilation at some mm-hmm. point of, of the, somebody just stops existing. existing. Mm-hmm. And there's art, biblical arguments for that yeah. and against it. And it's, again, I think there's speculation all around, but one yeah. Yeah. there's an awful lot. We, we know so there's so much that is clear <laughs> that we should be um, you know yeah. I, I'm not like a helpful note to the end on because I think you're right like there's so much that isn't clear but we do know that Jesus went to the depths yep. and yeah. that Jesus was raised again and that in some sort of mysterious way we'll be raised with him Absolutely. we don't really know what that looks like or how that works yeah we got one. The kind of reason to bring that up was because it's speculation, just a lot like, like this is very much speculation. A lot of these things are not from scripture. So like what's in scripture is all we, all that we need. So at this when you get to like starting to have all these divisions and things, and obviously some of it's Jewish history, which is not bad, but it's just like non essential to it's for salvation and for the important things. So I think it's just like 
if you go too deep into this, you just can go down the wrong path. But that's all I have to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I did, I did, I do think it's not. I mean, I, I would, I would agree. This is not essential in, in, in some sense. And even like I said, I think the nature of the descent isn't happens off stage in scripture. Yeah. It is, it's a silent day in a lot of. Well, we don't see what what's going on. But it's not as though none of these things are like come from scripture. How do we how do we put scripture together? I mean, there's so many things in the Bible that it would be really great if it had just like directly stated exact. But it, it's not it's not always like that. So trying to put it put it together and have it um, in some way be coherent um, or, put, or or make some sense on it and realize even though um, you know this isn't. This is sort of the the background issue, or sort of the, how people were thinking in the day. I think it's important to remember that the Bible is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It's very easy to misread what the Bible is trying to say for us because we just assume it was written to us. And so, just trying to do some of the work of of, of, of letting the Bible speak to us today but realize it also spoke to its day in a way and so that it takes some work and you know this this is people get a bit up in arms about this line in the creed whether or not and you know people are like let's throw this thing out it's not it's not biblical and i think it teaches something that is 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 scriptural and um um I think it's good news, and I think if it's good news for no other reason than, like, so much of our life is is this day, so it feels like this day in between, like, it's not, it's not our, this day where it's like, what is God doing, where is God, what's happening, um, so I, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm interested, I sort of existentially and spiritually drawn to this day, because I feel as though I look at him like, what is God doing, what is going on, I'm not fully... Seeing the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, all the time, everywhere around me. But life is also not just all day, you know. So it's like I connect to this day, this 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 waiting, this this feeling as though it's silent. But then knowing, even though I don't see it, like God is God is on the move. Like God is God is doing things in this world. Um, so anyway, uh, anyway, yeah. So I just want well. Great lecture, yes. great main point, and I mean, I just mentioned this. I think this icon's powerful. I mean, Jesus, because he did that on Holy Saturday, he's pulling up Adam he's and Eve. Pulling them up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah, he's powerful. Adam and Eve are like the deadest people ever. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're not mostly dead. Uh, they are full on. And he's pulling them out. It looks like like doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, they're out of graves. Yeah. Which are um, oh, there was some connection, some like typological connection between oh, often um, well, not but um, when there's icons that have um, like baby Jesus, he is the um, the manger is often a coffin. It's like a it's a grave. So it's like even from there's you know which is just interesting. But yeah, Erica. I just realized I'm not sure how biblical it would be to be pulling up Adam and Eve. Here are the original sinners, we don't actually know a lot about how righteous, how like much they devoted their lives to God. <coughs> um, 
also just like how I guess this calls into question like how was a righteous person defined before Jesus like what line yeah, yeah. did God use for that yeah this is well the first I think this is this is this is also art, and and it's also it's it's theological, and I don't think, I think if you read this as if if a reading of this was like, God when Jesus went to the dead, he only pulled up Adam and Eve, um, and this is what Adam was wearing, and this is what Eve you know like what just this blue here like I don't think that's I think that Adam and Eve are 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 our first parents. They represent the human race, and that the human race, as we're under, we're under death. Like death, death gets all of us. And so the idea that, it, like, I love how Ben said it. You like, you can't get more dead than these two. And if if Jesus can pull up these two, um, yeah, he, he's going to pull everybody else out of here. So I don't know if if it's if it's exactly trying to teach that those two things. Um, uh, or, or teach that that way, but I mean, I think Abraham believed God. He trusted God, and he was considered righteous. And he trusted God, and he did what God said. Um, uh, so I don't, you know, there's 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 a very extensive um, set of rules uh, in the Old Testament, but it's not as though only those who follow those rules are sort of right with. Yeah, it's not as yeah. So I, uh, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. That's sort of the point. So again, this isn't this isn't another thing that is laid out. I think like super. There are places where the Bible is silent, and we we're we're given a picture of God who is just, and but He's also merciful and and compassionate. Um, so and He. Doesn't say this is exactly what righteousness looks like. Um, he lets us know what un- I mean. He knows general. Cha- I mean, we were described general characteristics of or, or of what righteousness looks like, or we're sort of narratively portrayed people who are righteous, who trust God, who do what He says. I'm not like giving the line because like the standard that is set is impossible. So I don't think that we could like. It's just interesting that there was a time when I mean, in a way. There is still, uh, oh, like, is someone, well, I've been asking this question this week, like, just because someone wears a label Christian, does that mean that they're safe? Like, um, is someone's actions, you know, but no. it's separate. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, like, no, I mean, I don't think just because someone says they're a Christian means they're in Christ, I, just because they say that. Um, uh, but I'm also not in a position to say yeah but when people um, don't exhibit any of the fruit of the spirit and start um, showing you know the works of the flesh or however you want to describe it I, I think it's safe to ask questions like if you are a follower of Christ what are you like what's going on and um, but yeah, were you going to say something? About it? I was going to say just that right, righteousness. We were talking about this uh, yesterday at breakfast. I guess it was. If I remember correctly, it seems like a long time ago. Um, <laughs> Psalm thirty-two, talking about blessed are you, um, 
those whose sins are covered. It's all about knowing your sin, coming to God, confessing your sin, stop pretending, receive forgiveness, and then you are the righteous. <laughs> then you are reconciled to God. And so the line, even in the Old Testament, isn't just about perfect law-keeping equals righteousness. It's about, are you reconciled to God? Meaning, have you stopped pretending you're perfect? And have you actually come to Him and asking for forgiveness? And then, righteousness has to do with right relationship with Him. So that's um, kind of like there was forgiveness of sin before Jesus. Absolutely. 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 Yeah, absolutely. That's a different kind of forgiveness of sin. Well, well no. you mean, insofar as it results from salvation, it's dependent on Jesus' future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the whole yeah. sacrificial yeah. system is yeah. pointing to Jesus, the, the lamb, the lamb who is slain, yeah. um, who bears yeah. the sins of the people. Mm-hmm. And if, if the death of Jesus can reach forward, it can reach mm-hmm. backward too. Yeah. 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 Romans 4 is very good in that. Mm-hmm. Abraham. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right.